Hi entrepreneurs and venture capitalists. In today's episode of the Long Game Podcast, we have Dr. Ong Kian Ming, former MP of Bangi and Deputy Minister of Miti, to discuss on how we can make Malaysia great again. To start off the episode, here's my colleague Iman who will share the latest outlook on the VC space. Hi, I'm Iman. I'm an analyst of Penjana Capital. Today, we'll be looking ahead to quarter 1 2023 and discussing what we can expect from the venture capital market. Globally, the venture capital market is expected to face some challenges in the coming months. With consumer-focused businesses feeling the most strain, the IPO window is also likely to remain muted, particularly in the US. The short-term view of the Fed rate hike is expected to tighten for a longer period, which will have an impact on the market. As a result, many companies could run out of cash, and we may see a number of major startup deaths over the next few quarters. That being said, we can expect an increase in M&A activity as well as down rounds. This trend is also expected to be seen in Malaysia. Speaking of Malaysia, Bank Negara Malaysia recently announced that the country's GDP grew by 8.7% last year, which is the highest annual growth rate posted by the country in the past 22 years. Bank Negara expects growth in 2023 to continue, albeit at a more moderate pace due to slower external demand. However, it will still be supported by domestic demand on the back of continued improvement in the job market higher tourism activity and positive effects from China reopening its economy. As we move into 2023, we can expect deal flow to remain robust in Malaysia. Several Malaysian startups recently concluded fundraising exercises, signaling a healthy pipeline of deals in the country. These include on-demand subscription-based insurance company Senang, biotech company Biogenes, Islamic-themed streaming service Durio, e-commerce marketplace La Pasar, and online investing platform PitchIn. In addition, the broader energy sector is expected to remain very hot due to the ongoing energy crisis in Europe and concerns about sustainability and climate change. This trend is reflected locally as Miti expects Malaysia to provide up to 4,000 EV charging points in 2023 alone. Investors will continue to make big bets on alternative energy technologies, electric and hydrogen-powered vehicles, and battery storage. Finally, investments in artificial intelligence are expected to grow long-term globally. The chat GPT craze is fueling more funding, particularly in game-changing areas such as generative AI and conversational AI. That's all from me and I hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. Up next, it would be the interview with Dr. Ong Kian Ming. Before we jump right into the interview with Dr. Ong Kian Ming, here's a fun fact about venture capital. Did you know Amazon, Google, and Microsoft had raised approximately 35 million US dollars before going public? 
Adam Newman, the infamous entrepreneur behind WeWork, raised a stunning 350 million US dollars from Anderson Horowitz. And this is for a yet-to-launch real estate company called Flow. And speaking of WeWork, the company had raised a total of 22.2 billion US dollars in funding over 23 rounds. It just goes to show that success in a startup world isn't always about raising the most money, but rather about creating real value and building a sustainable business. Welcome to the Long Game Podcast, where we delve into the world of VC and entrepreneurship. I am your host, Sharul Hamdan, Principal of Penjana Capital, and I'm thrilled to have with us today Dr. Ong Kian Ming, former MP of Bangi and former Deputy Minister of Miti. Dr. Ong has a wealth of knowledge on the investment landscape in Malaysia, and we're excited to have him share his insights with us today. Uh, so, Dr. Ong, before we jump right in just to warm up, you know, why don't you just let us know what you've been up to? Um, since uh, you decided not to run in the previous GE. So um, what was your motivations and you know, what, what have you been um, doing? Oh, thanks. Uh, thanks, Cheryl. Thanks, uh, Panjana Capital, for inviting me to share a few thoughts as a uh, not, not really retired politician, uh, but no longer a frontline politician. Uh, you know, it's been good in terms of being able to spend more time with my wife, uh, play more sports. I just came from a badminton uh, coaching session. Uh, and also, I've been uh, taking some time to meet different people, uh, including people in the entrepreneurial space, just to find out about uh, their pain points. Uh, I always ask them about how they managed to survive through COVID, uh, and then uh, later on ask them about their plans uh, for 2023 and beyond. So it's a quite exciting time, I think, for, for the country. Uh, and also for me personally, uh, I'm uh, exploring a couple of roles, and probably when this podcast is out, uh, you know, um, this will be the first time I'm announcing it. Uh, I'll be taking up a uh, professorial appointment at uh, Taylor's University uh, to be program director for a new program they are launching. Uh, it's called uh, Politics, uh, Philosophy and Economics, or Philosophy, oh, Politics PPE. and Economics, nice. PPE. A few of my colleagues have studied this in Oxford, <laughs> <laughs> uh, namely uh, Tony Pua and then uh, and uh, Kairi Jamuluddin, uh, two former MPs. Maybe I'll get them to come and uh, teach a few courses here and there. <laughs> and then the other, the other role that I'm going to be starting soon is uh, I'll be taking up a non-residential fellowship appointment uh, at the Yusuf Ishak Institute of Southeast Asian Studies. It's based in Singapore, but I'll be doing work uh, out of uh, KL. And of course, I'm still helping out uh, my colleagues who are in government now on an informal capacity. Yeah. All right, congratulations. Very Thanks. happy very to, to hear that. Um, yeah, so maybe let's just jump right in and we'll start our discussion so the topic of our podcast today is Make Malaysia Great Again. Uh, um, <laughs> so, so Make Malaysia Great Again, so it's uh, instead of, uh, it's like a MAGA. MAGA, kind of yeah. Okay. Yeah, now it's MMGA. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> okay. so just to give some context uh, before we get into the question. So Malaysia aims to position itself as an investment hub. Uh, but the reality is unfortunately far from it. Um, and the statistics are evident of this. Um, the Edge recently published a piece showing that post the Asian financial crisis, uh, Malaysia only attracts about 8% of inward FDIs in Southeast Asia. So uh, this is a huge drop from Malaysia's glory days, obviously, um, before the AFC, uh, which was, um, the number was coming in about around 24%. So, you know, there's a lot of media talk saying that, you know, we used to be one of the most promising um, ASEAN countries, etc. Um, as for our capital markets, foreign shareholdings has, have also dropped over the years. Um, so I just wanted to, you know, start in a 
just a slightly negative context and hopefully we can get a bit yeah, provocative, provocative a bit yes. and then we can get to the mm. positives. Mm. So in that gleam out, uh, in that bleak outlook um, for the listeners benefit you know what are the different types of foreign investments into Malaysia? How do we distinguish them? What types of investments should we be targeting? And is that assessment fair um, in your opinion? Yeah, thanks. A uh, good way to start. Uh, I, I think in any sort of like analysis of big numbers, one needs to uh, look at the numbers with a certain uh, nuance. Uh. So when you talk about FDI, there are different sorts of FDI that can come into a country. Uh, and different people interpret the, the, the word FDI in different ways. Uh, so for example, from if I were to wear my hat as former METI deputy minister, FDI to me would be the companies that are coming to Malaysia to invest, to build factories, to hire people, uh, to uh, you know, uh, build uh, global business service centers in Malaysia. So these are you know, more on the manufacturing and services FDI, uh, which uh, you know, uh, takes a longer time to uh, germinate, uh, but they are in Malaysia for the long haul. They provide good jobs. Uh, they uh, are sort of like uh, you know, economic uh, multipliers in their own ways. Uh, so that would be one basket of FDI where I think Malaysia has done relatively well, uh, especially in the E&E sector. Uh, but uh, I think we can uh, do much more and I'll come back to that later. So the other sort of like uh, area of FDI which uh, people uh, talk about and which you also have uh, alluded to and, and mentioned some figures is um, FDI from the perspective of investment in uh, financial uh, instruments. So whether it's uh, investment in our capital markets, uh, be it the stock exchange or coming in to buy uh, Malaysian government, government bonds, for example. Uh, I think uh, on, on this front, uh, yes, Malaysia has seen uh, some deterioration, but it, it is not necessarily a bad thing because you are probably too young to remember. But during the, the, the boom days you know, in uh, Southeast Asia in the mid-1990s, uh, Malaysia was one of the top five um, stock markets in the world mm. from a transaction standpoint. Uh, but a lot of that was also hot money coming into the country. Mm. Right? So do, do we want a repeat of very high uh, capital inflows that may leave the country anytime? Because of certain uh, you know, uh, factors that are beyond our control? I would say probably not, uh, but we also need to make sure that there's enough avenues, uh, enough uh, you know, places where Malaysian companies and companies that are based in Malaysia can raise money uh, from a capital markets uh, perspective. Uh, so, you know, uh, and, and then the, the last basket is more like um, investment in government uh, securities, MGS. Uh, I, I think those are still relatively popular uh, domestically and globally. As long as people are willing to buy our bonds, it means that the government can uh, continue to finance uh, our deficit. doesn't mean that, this, that the government should, should uh, spend money irresponsibly. Uh, I, I do have a lot of confidence in our new finance minister and uh, prime minister. He's been finance minister before. Mm. So, you know, we, we need to take all those figures uh, in terms of its context and nuance. Okay, great. Um, so, in, in that light, um, how do we get more competitive? Uh, how, how do we attract foreign capital in here um, and, and politically as well what, what can we do what can politicians do what can the government agencies do yeah. to attract um, FDI yeah, um, so we, we need to look at uh, things from, uh, from different levels you know, at, at the sort of like a global macro picture uh, you have an increase in FDI especially from the manufacturing and services part of things uh, part of the, the economic sector uh, you know, because of uh, US-China tensions so that has uh, been something that was quite obvious uh, when I was deputy minister, and it continues to be the case. If you're a European or an American company that's, in, that's playing in the E&E space, 
you know, the prospect of you having big investment, new investments into China is very, very low these days. Mm. Uh, but uh, they will look for alternatives and alternatives would be somewhere in the region, either India uh, or, or Southeast Asia. Uh, there's, of course, some onshoring happening in the US because of uh, the CHIPS Act uh, and uh, other legislation. But, you know, we have to be cognizant of that uh, glo global geopolitical setting and try to take advantage of that. And then uh, related to that would be to look at countries around ASEAN, right? Uh, yes, we do compete with one another in terms of attracting FDI. Uh, you know, sometimes companies may choose to either be in Thailand or in Malaysia. Uh, but I think in the longer run, what we have seen happening, and I'm confident we will see uh, continue to happen, is the regional supply chain linkages would be increased. So let me give an example. Uh, Malaysia and Singapore, we are quite linked in, uh, in uh, for example, the way in which, um, you know, Dyson, for example, they manufacture some of their engines for some of their very high-end uh, consumer electronics in Singapore. Uh, but many of the plastic component parts are manufactured mm. in Johor and other parts of Malaysia, right? So that kind of symbiotic relationship can be extended to other parts of ASEAN as well. So if let's say Indonesia wants to go into EV vehicles, okay, uh, they want to produce the battery because nickel is uh, readily available in Indonesia, but Malaysia can be part and parcel of the ecosystem because we are pretty good at automotive, uh, producing automotive components, right? So when, when, when I describe this kind of... Um, uh, global picture, regional picture, and then also the kind of uh, uh, supply chain linkages that we have can have in the country. Uh, then the different government agencies, whether it's MITI, uh, whether it's MIDA, MDAC, uh, you know the, the different uh, investment promotion agencies in Malaysia at the uh, at the uh, federal and state level, uh, they can uh, work uh, together, work together with their relevant ministries to attract um, value added investments in different parts of the country. Right. So I, I think this is sort of like just to get the ball rolling. Mm, okay. So I think it's a good segue into um, exploring on your experience as Deputy Minister mm. of MITI. So when you speak about regional cooperation, when you were in that position, um, did you see any, how close are we really uh, on the ground level with our regional partners? Are these mostly just um, on the surface MOU signings or do we really have good you know, engagement with these partners across ASEAN? Okay, so from, from let's say, a trade perspective, uh, we inter-ASEAN regional trade has been sort of like stagnating at between mm. 22 to 25% for probably the past 10 years, right? And this is despite uh, the ASEAN economic uh, community, uh, you know, putting, coming into, uh, you know, into fruition in the, in the 2000s uh, and different ASEAN-related uh, trade agreements. Uh, and of course, uh, recently we have, uh, RCEP that, that where ASEAN is the core but other countries are joined in as well so most ASEAN countries uh, you know still have this kind of perception including Malaysia uh, that oh we attract FDI and then this FDI whether it's from Japan China US Europe uh, will produce in Malaysia and then they uh, you know this the output whether it's uh, you know uh, goods or services they are prim primarily exported back to their home countries in Europe, in, in, in US and, and whatnot. So the, the, the notion of inter-regional ASEAN supply chain and also looking at ASEAN as a legitimate market by itself, right? With, uh, you know, um, some people have said the fourth or five, fifth uh, largest uh, region in the world from a GDP perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, population-wise, we, we have, uh, you, know, uh, you know, a large and growing population as well. So when, when we want to uh, make more people see 
you know, ASEAN as a legitimate market in itself, then the kind of um, uh, cooperation that you talk about uh, will mm. increase in depth and increase in scope. Uh, I would say, uh, you know, uh, frankly speaking, the, the country that really sees ASEAN and it, as its uh, marketplace uh, will be Singapore. Mm. Uh, because there's a lot of deals that are done, uh, you know, uh, in ASEAN that are channeled through Singapore from a capital perspective. Uh, and, uh, you know, Singapore clearly sees ASEAN as its in hinterland. Uh, just like how Hong Kong sees uh, China as its hinterland, mainland China as its hinterland. So I think, uh, you know, Malaysia can uh, play a role, uh, but we need uh, to have a more strategic, uh, longer-term thinking to uh, deepen those linkages. Yeah, okay. Um, if I can just dig a bit deeper on that, mm -hmm. um, if you don't mind. Uh, so when we engage with these governments, um, uh, what what is really being done? Are these agencies interlinked? Like our METI will speak with their their version of METI, and and where how does it really flow down into policy? Okay, uh, that's an excellent question. Uh, I think where um, countries can identify specific areas of uh, joint mm. cooperation, then it can be taken at a deeper level. Mm. Uh, and I'll give you a couple of examples from my experience as a deputy minister. So. Um, Malaysia-China, uh, we have a good relationship, but it's not very well institutionalized. Mm. Uh, so the way China works with different countries uh, in ASEAN and also uh, in other parts of the world is that the, the more comfortable they are working with you, their uh, they they are record of working with you and their relationship in terms of working with you, uh, the more willing they are to establish these kinds of G2G uh, G uh, councils or G2G G, uh, action committees. Right, so when, when I was a deputy minister of Amiti, uh, there was a uh, you know council between Malaysia and China to look at the two industrial parks that we set up, uh, the Malaysia-China Kuantan Industrial Park, and then the China-Malaysia uh, Qingzhou Industrial Park that's in China. So we have uh, you know yearly meetings, once in Malaysia, once in China. It was disrupted by COVID, uh, to uh, you know keep track of the progression of these kinds of investments, uh, but. Uh, you know, to really get these kinds of things going, you need to have the private sector involved. Mm. You need to have the private sector from Malaysia going to China to invest, and then you need the private sector or, uh, you know, some of the more, uh, you know, um, larger state-owned enterprises in China who wants to expand their overseas, uh, expand their, their operations overseas to come to Malaysia, mm. right? So, uh, you know, we, uh, that, that is the modus operandi for China. But for you know Malaysia with other countries in Southeast Asia, with other countries in uh, around the world, the the the, the kind of uh, cooperation would be different. Uh, again, sometimes G two G is helpful. Sometimes having institution to institution or government agency to government agency kind of uh, understanding would be helpful. Uh, but what where I've seen the most kind of uh, uh, you know engagement uh, taking root is if private sector companies from different countries can talk to one another. And more importantly, if they can co-invest in one another, mm. that would be when uh, the linkages can be uh, really uh, deepened. I totally agree with you in terms of co-investing with, with um, similar agencies such as ourselves abroad um, it, and also with the private sector from abroad and locally as well. Mm. Um, the intermingling between the government and, and the private sector is very key to provide confidence to the foreign investors as well to come in here. Mm. Maybe um, I throw it back to you. La, you know, mm. when, 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 when you have these kinds of... Uh, uh, interactions with your Indonesian counterparts, right? Mm. What are some of the ideas uh, that you exchange? Uh, what are some of the possibilities in terms of deepening those uh, those uh, those ties? I'll be honest. I think the first thing it always starts with deal flow, exposure to deals. Um, it always starts on a high level. Um, looking at which sector 
that they're interested in, what can Malaysia then offer, what can Penjana and obviously MOF then help in terms of the access to, I don't know, capital, employment, talent. So it's, I think deal flow is, is, uh, has to be shared a lot more vigorously, I think, mm. um, because opportunities are there, as you rightly mentioned, in the, in the region. Um, but yeah, like you said, it's very important to follow up uh, instead of just um, you know, piecemeal agreements here and there. So I totally agree with you and I think that's that's very constructive for the podcast. But thank you. Thank you so much. Um, okay, so we've explored that on, on the ASEAN side. Um, can you just share on a personal and also professional level some challenges that you faced as, as Deputy Minister of, of METI? Mm, um, I think... This, this is a challenge that all deputy ministers face uh, and mm. you know, maybe interesting for your audience as well. Uh, deputy ministers have no power. <laughs> <laughs> really? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the power is, you know, is uh, held uh, you know, uh, uh, by the minister and, and mm. there are good reasons for that because you need to have one person who is ultimately accountable either to the public or to cabinet. This mm. is why they call Jima Menteri, the cabinet. Mm. Right? Uh, but where the uh, deputy minister can play a role is to assist uh, the minister uh, to amplify the minister's vision and message and to cover uh, for the minister in areas where the minister may not have so much time uh, to cover. Mm. Right? So like for me, uh, you know, I, I told my minister, uh, you know, Daryl Liking, that I really wanted to focus on a couple of areas. You know, I wanted to focus on China uh, and this includes uh, Hong Kong. Uh, I wanted to focus on the E&E sector in Malaysia uh, and I wanted to focus on uh, Industry 4.0, Industry Forward mm. Rollout. Right. So, you know, I try to focus a, a lot on uh, factory visits in Malaysia. I've, in my 20 months as Deputy Minister, I probably visited close to about 100 factories. Mm. And they are different sizes. Uh, mm. MNCs from different countries, uh, Malaysian companies uh, at the medium as well as even at the small level. Uh, and then when I visit, visit some of the Malaysian companies, I will push uh, Industry 4.0 policy uh, that is, uh, was rolled up by MITI. Mm. Uh, so, you know, th- uh, that was my role in terms of trying to... Um, uh, you know, uh, assist the, the minister and the ministry. Uh, but of course, I think, uh, you know, you mentioned challenge. Whenever I speak to uh, the SME in the manufacturing sector in Malaysia, many of them are suspicious of the government. Uh, you may find this funny, you know, because, uh, uh, you know, many of them think that, oh, government is here to interfere uh, and to, mm. to, to put more regulations in, 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 uh, in the way I operate rather than to help. So it mm. really took me a long time before I could uh, convince uh, some of these SMEs to apply for the Industry 4.0 policies, uh, to apply for some of the grants after they went through some vetting process. Uh, And I'm glad to say that even though I didn't see the the fruit of these efforts when I was Deputy Minister, but because of COVID, because of shortage of labour, because Mm. of the push for greater automation, a lot of these uh, SMEs in the manufacturing sector suddenly thought, hey, you know, we need to get on this uh, Industry 4.0 bandwagon and during the pandemic, many of them actually signed Mm. up. It. So, you know, m- many challenges, but also good opportunities to try to uh, work with industry, mm-hmm. work with the SMEs, work with the, uh, you know, foreign multinationals who are here, uh, you know, at, at different levels, you know. And I, I think that was a wonderful 20 months. Uh, other than factories, I also visited uh, many of the uh, global business services uh, that are based here in Malaysia. Uh, this, is, this is what was, um, what started out as back office operations, mm-hmm. you know, starting from... Uh, Citibank doing some of their loan processing documentation mm. in Penang. Now you have 
many banks actually regional banks having their uh, you know uh, operation center here which has expanded to different uh, different uh, areas of activity including uh, things like uh, HR management mm. IT management uh, now you know moving into big data analysis so I, I do this I do see this area as one area of uh, uh, great uh, potential growth for Malaysia right mm. and the Philippines will take a lot of the voice stuff <laughs> yeah. uh, Malaysia uh, we, we take uh, you know a lot of the processing stuff yeah correct yeah. and maybe just on last question on METI specifically if you were still in METI today how would you what would you do differently from what has been doing for the last you know few years you know are you do you agree with the certain um, the direction that the ministry has taken in terms of policies etc what would you tweak roughly constructively yeah yeah sure <laughs> um i i think one of the good things about meti that maybe the larger audience doesn't uh, uh, know and mm. maybe it's not so aware about is that meti is one of the most uh, sort of like outward facing uh, ministries uh, and similarly with the agencies under METI such as MIDA for example mm-hmm. that is an investment promotion agency so when I went into METI as a deputy minister I found that this kind of outward looking uh, um, you know perspective uh, has been there for a long time and credit has got to be given to uh, Rafida Aziz for having this kind of culture mm-hmm. so uh, you know there, there may have been uh, you know certain uh, you know hesitation to go out and engage with the same level at the same level during the pandemic for, mm-hmm. for various reasons uh, but now that uh, you know we're out of the pandemic and now we have uh, Tengku Zafru who's very used to dealing with the private sector mm. uh, and also Liu Jintong who's a very strategic thinker as, as his deputy uh, I'm, I'm, I'm quite optimistic that METI would regain some of its uh, uh, you know outward facing uh, engagement and, and the kind of uh, good publicity that it got uh, where I think uh, there are some areas for improvement is to uh, really understand the pain points that different industry players are facing uh, and to be able to map out strategies that METI and other government um, ministries can undertake in order to uh, coordinate and reduce some of those pain points uh, so that um, the Malaysian economy as a whole uh, can improve. And I'll give you a specific example. Mm-hmm. So one of the main challenges, one of the bigger cha- biggest challenges that a lot of the, the factories were facing, whether it's MNC or SME, during the pandemic was uh, housing for workers. Mm. Right? So housing for workers is uh, not a very well-regulated uh, uh, area. Uh, and you have a lot of workers who are being crammed into very poor housing mm. conditions. Mm. Uh, and some, some of our companies you know, in the glove sector, yeah. for example, yeah. got reprimanded. You know, the exports got temporarily mm. stopped by the US Customs Border and Patrol. Right? So... Uh, during the pandemic, uh, the Ministry of Housing and Local Government, uh, the KSU came out with a with a percolating or a circular mm. to say that, look, we recognize this problem. So we are going to allow for the building of workers' hostels in industrial land. Mm. Previously, there's no, uh, most of this was done uh, on uh, um, residential land. Mm. So if you, let's say you want to build a condo for, uh, for foreign workers, Definitely, uh, you know, people who buy into those units will complain. The mm. people around uh, that, that area will also complain. Mm. But if you build an industrial land, uh, mm. no complaints. Mm. They've got all factory yeah. uh, workers and, and owners there, right? Mm. So, you know, this is a good policy. Uh, you know, METI, uh, I was made to understand, support this policy. But it wasn't sort of like coordinated on the part of the KPKT, on the part of METI, on the mm. part of the, even the, the, uh, the, the state governments. Because you need this kind of coordination to be able to put that uh, policy forward and if let's say that policy is well coordinated then you have spillover effects for the construction sector 
you will also be able to have uh, ESG compliance, right? So you mm. can say that, oh, uh, I have uh, better ESG uh, measures. Uh, for the banks that want to fund this kind of construction, then they will say, look, this part and parcel of my ESG portfolio, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and then for the people who are managing these hostels, you can think of even uh, better technology, uh, tracking the workers' health, uh, using different apps that can be deployed at different workers' uh, hostels uh, ar around the country, mm. right? So if you, let's say you have that kind of coordination, that kind of strategic thinking, right? Uh, who knows, you know, even, you know, Punjana Capital can invest in some of these companies who are mm. doing this kind of uh, uh, deployment, right? Then you can, you, can, you can not just have better policies in place, but you can actually grow the economy in different ways, mm. right? And yeah. I think this is something that uh, you need uh, more, perhaps, an uh, entrepreneurial mindset uh, on the part right. of uh, the ministries, Mm, yeah. Okay, okay. Maybe we reach to the towards the tail end. Maybe you just um, talk about the VC space. Uh, yeah. Just generally, what are your thoughts uh, on on how Punjana or other government agencies in this space um, can help catalyze this industry? Okay, so I, I'm I'm actually quite bullish about the VC and the PE space in in Malaysia for a couple of reasons. One, I think the entre entrepreneurial spirit in uh, the younger generation is uh, much higher compared mm. to before. And I think I attribute that partly to the fact that many of them were exposed, have been exposed to uh, tech at a much early age, right? So, you know, everyone, you know, thinks that they can design an app to uh, solve certain problems, which mm -hmm. is good. I, I think it's good to push that kind of creative thinking. Uh, and, and then also, I think young people these days are less, uh, in, less patient, uh, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they want to try to uh, address certain problems in the country. Uh, and they want to approach it from the perspective of building a business, right? Uh, whether it's in the healthcare sector, whether it's in F&B, delivery, retail, uh, you know, manufacturing, uh, you know, and, and so on and so forth. So I've met enough entrepreneurs to, to uh, know that this kind of entrepreneurial spirit is out there. Uh, so, which is why I think there are a lot of opportunities for uh, VCs and uh, PEs, PE funds to uh, add value. Uh, where I think uh, the... the maybe ways in which uh, the process can be improved is um, the value added that VC and PE funds bring onto the table, to me, has not really been pushed to the max. Mm -hmm. So a lot of, uh, probably in the PE space, uh, this would be more relevant. Uh, you know, the funds will come in, they will acquire the, the asset, uh, you know, and, and they would more or less keep the operations the, the same, same yeah. because they don't want to disrupt the cash flow and the yeah. profitability. But if that's the case, then what is your value added as the, <laughs> as the, as the fund, right? Yeah. Uh, so I, I think a lot more can be done in this space in terms of bringing in uh, different expertise to raise the bar, mm. whether it's uh, you know, consultants from outside or, or people who have been in the industry to put them in management positions. Mm. But it requires a little bit more bolder action and thinking by VCs. Mm. Not quite barbarians at the, at the gate, uh, Ajiam Nabisco type, but uh, in the Malaysian context, we probably have song towards, uh, you know, uh, being uh, uh, wanting to be uh, too much of a nice guy. Like, yeah, right. Agree. So, so that that's one area. Uh, I think an uh, an area that's probably more specific to Punjana and and also to those government agencies that are operating in this space, right? Mm. Uh, I think uh, where uh, things things can be helpful, uh, these agencies can be helpful is number one, uh, identifying. Uh, the pain points, uh, you know, for these uh, VC uh, companies, uh, so, sorry, these uh, investee companies mm. uh, from a government regulation standpoint, mm -hmm. right? So I, I don't think, uh, you know, 
uh, it's, I don't think it's a good idea for these, uh, you know, PE or VC uh, invested investing companies to go to the government to ask for contracts mm. or to ask for grants and things like that. I, I don't think that's sustainable. Uh, they need to go to the private sector to prove their 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 worth. Uh, but in areas where, for example, if let's say I need the government intervention or a government assistance to expedite certain transactions that I'm doing with the private sector, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, I need the government to not have a very monopolistic approach towards some of these. Uh, you know regulations. Then I think mm. this is where uh, an area where the government can play a bigger role. So, mm. uh, you know, Kasem, you know, it's it's the most famous unicorn in Malaysia. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also required some assistance from JPJ uh, in terms of transferring the ownership from a second-hand car owner mm. to another second-hand car owner. Mm. So the the faster that process can be expedited from a government regulation perspective, the the faster uh, you know a company like Kasem Kasem mm. can grow. Uh, that that's one area. Then the other area is basically what I said earlier with regards to the SMEs. Uh, uh, not not put in uh, regulations that or, or put in processes that will hamper uh, the uh, the possibility for these uh, companies to grow. Mm. Uh, I I think it's always a, a good engagement process. And the advantage that government agencies have is that you can be a good spokesperson on behalf of these uh, com- investing companies. Because mm. investing companies, if they go to JPJ, if let's say Kasim, that time they Correct. were very small, they go to JPJ, JPJ will say, yeah. who, who are, are you? you? Yeah. Right? But if let's say Penjana Capital goes or Mathcap goes, mm. you know, mm. or Maranti goes and say, look, mm. you know, uh, I want to en- uh, have a dialogue session between a certain government ministry or minister mm. together with, uh, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 mm. investing companies. Mm. Then, uh, then they can use the opportunity to raise up these points. And of course, ultimately, uh, it also comes down to what I said uh, earlier. There needs to be proper follow-up. <laughs> <laughs> right? The companies need to follow up with the ministry or the uh, ministers. And then mm. the minister must have good uh, special officers around him yeah. so that he can be... Following up on that. Yes. Correct. But is that, a, is that a bad thing though? Like, If a government-led initiative is not done then private players can't engage with certain government agencies. What, what's, what's your take on that? Is, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, I, I think it is uh, something which all governments face uh, in terms of uh, the, the lack of access. Mm. Uh, I think Malaysia, it is not that bad because we're a relatively small country. Uh, and I think uh, the other good thing about Malaysia is that we have enough government agencies whereby if, let's say, you have good people that are there, that are proactive, uh, that are looking out for the interests of the larger industry, uh, then I think uh, you know at least the initial facilitation part usually is not that difficult, yeah. Okay. But but usually it is the small players that get left out of this conversation. Mm. The big boys they have their business chambers, they have mm. uh, they have even direct access to some ministers. Yeah. Uh, so you know um, it's like the smaller players in the PE and VC space mm. that require more assistance, which uh, you know I think Penjana can play a role. Okay, Doctor Ong, thank you for sharing your insights and views to our listeners. Before we let you go, we have a few standing questions that we like to ask all of our guests. The first question is, if you could invest in or start any business or industry, regardless of current market trends, and assuming you have all the money in the world, what would it be and why? Uh, I think it would probably be something sports related <laughs> because uh, I'm, uh, I, I like playing sports and I also am a keen observer of different uh, trends in the sports industry, not just in Malaysia but globally. Uh, and I, I think that there's a lot of uh, potential in Malaysia, uh, you know, from a manufacturing standpoint, uh, from a, a tech standpoint, mm. from a big data standpoint, and also, you know, in ways which hopefully can benefit uh, the athletes that are interested in, you know, developing sports as a career in Malaysia. Mm. Okay. 
Um, second standing question is, what do you consider a must-read book or must-listen podcast for those interested in the Malaysian startup landscape? Uh, I would say uh, the uh, BFM, uh, mm. you know, related podcasts would be a good place to go to, especially yeah. in places where they uh, host, uh, you know, companies that are relatively young, uh, SMEs. So that would be my go-to uh, BFM for podcasts. Uh, and then for uh, books, mm, I would say probably not so much on the entrepreneurial space, uh, mm. but from a more humanis- hum- humanistic space, uh, which mm. I think is important in this day and age, including in Malaysia. My favorite book of all time would be a book called To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper <laughs> Lee. Right, so it deals with uh, race relations in the US. Uh, nice. but I think uh, uh, it would be also relevant you know, in terms of uh, trying to put yourself in the shoes of uh, the other person yeah, in the Malaysian context. Like. Yes, compassion. Mm-hmm. And also uh, understanding. And maybe some of that can also be applied to uh, the, the VC and PE space. Like, trying to put yourself <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the shoes of the consumer to yes. see how you can address some of their pain points. Huh, that's a damn good point. Thank you. <laughs> and the last standing question is, what advice would you offer to aspiring entrepreneurs in Malaysia? Uh, don't be afraid to talk, go out there and talk to different people. Uh, they may not necessarily from be from an industry that you're familiar with or you know, uh, but I think the more people that you talk to, uh, the more possibility of uh, interesting ideas being uh, fed back to your own uh, business, uh, business environment. But I, I think... Uh, you know, in addition to talking to people, when before you talk to these people, uh, try to do some homework, do mm. a LinkedIn check, you know, see where mm. they've been, see what they've done, so that your questions and the conversation that you can have with uh, these people can be more uh, specific, more focused, and you can get more of what you want out of that conversation in a more structured and strategic manner. Okay. And that concludes today's episode of The Long Game. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Ong Kian Ming, for joining us and sharing his valuable insights on the state of the investment industry in Malaysia and how we can make Malaysia great again. And to our listeners, if you want to catch the full conversation, head to our YouTube channel at Penjana Capital. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button and turn on notifications so you won't miss out on future episodes. Uh, We hope you found this episode informative and thought-provoking. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us and we will address it in the next episode. Don't forget to tune in next time as we continue our journey to explore the world of venture capital and bring you expert insights and in-depth discussions. Uh, Thank you for listening to The Long Game. Until next time, keep playing The Long Game and stay ahead of the game in the world of venture capital. (laughs) Bye-bye.